Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 17, Inverary. A distant clock chimed, shortly joined by the radio, which interrupted the relentless hip-hop that had boiled and mobbed the kitchen with nine plucked notes on a classic to announce the hour. Charlie asked Nin if there had been any word from the castle yet on the state of Duncan. Shaking his head, Nin returned his attention to the latest shinty results. Charlie pondered a moment and then brightened. I know what we should do. We should take Gillespie into Inverary. We could stroll into town, do a little light shopping and sink a few pints over lunch at the galley. What do you think? He looked from one to the other for encouragement. Certainly not the worst idea you've had, said Nin, and without waiting for Gillespie to offer an opinion, got to his feet, pushing back his chair with a scrape. Meet outside in five. And without further ado, he ushered Gillespie out of the kitchen. Charlie was the last to leave the house, pulling the bright blue door closed and turning the various keys that secured Elrig against unwanted intruders. In his hands, he carried a bundle of items that he passed to Gillespie one at a time. The first was a black jacket with the McNuchton tartan panel on its forearm, which he gestured to Gillespie to put on. Gillespie was glad of the extra layer, the temperature having dropped overnight. The jacket was slightly too big for his weedy frame, but it didn't matter as it was going over all the other clothes he was wearing. Charlie then handed him a sword. Gillespie paused as he reached out to take it. It had been at least ten years since he'd done any formal fencing. He could more or less remember the seven cuts and about half of the guards, but putting any of the elements together and actually fighting someone, let alone a gale, well, that was something else altogether. As if reading his mind, Charlie said, This is just to help you to blend in. For God's sake, don't draw it, whatever you do. If you don't carry one, people will know for sure you're an outsider, and that will set tongues wagging. He handed him a back-mounted scabbard of black webbing, identical to the ones that he and Nin were wearing. The final touch was a dark blue bonnet that Charlie put on his head and pulled rakishly to one side. Standing back and admiring his handiwork, he beamed, That'll do. Nin gave Gillespie the once-over and grunted his agreement only pausing briefly to roll his eyes at the trainers that still stuck out incongruously below the borrowed kilt. Nin reversed the cat, dodging through the piles of junk in the front yard. Gillespie climbed in the back, sitting in the hard plastic seat behind the driver's cab. Charlie climbed up next to him and, as Nin fired up the engine with a roar and crunched the beast into gear, shouted out to Gillespie, "'You'd do better to stand, even though we're not really going off-road,' If you sit down there, your kidneys are going to take a battery. Grinning, Gillespie stood up and held on to the robust roll cage that covered the cab. Fortunately, he just got his grip as the cat leapt forward and started down the hill, almost throwing him off the back in the process. They followed the road to the end of the glen, past the Duloch, and coming to the collection of houses at Stronshera. Nin pulled in and went to rap on the door of number six. After a short pause, Breed came out, still in her pyjamas with her blonde hair frizzed and tousled. After a brief exchange with Nin, she shut the door and Nin returned to the cat. She'll follow us down and meet us, either at Carnes or at the galley for lunch. Leaving Stronshira behind, they almost immediately came to the battered bridge over the river. We're now leaving McNuchton land 
and it's as well to be aware of the fact this is now Clan Campbell territory, and while we get on okay at the moment with McCallan Moore, Charlie shouts above the roar of the engine while pointing at the great turreted castle to their right, they are not Clan, and you should remember that. Although the cat was by no means comfortable, once they were on the track it ate up the bumps and ruts with ease. They were soon pulling up the fine stone bridge over the Arry River. Nin cheekily stopped the cat at the apex so that Gillespie could get the best view of the castle before he crunched the gears and roared down the final stretch into town. It was a pretty town and lay along the loch. Successive waves of development had expanded it from its 18th century core and there were now rows of well-tended modern houses that surrounded the old borough and stretched out to the south. The harbour was teeming with boats like the one that Gillespie had crossed from Ireland in, small, fast and manoeuvrable. Nin nosed down a side road, more of a passageway, and came to a small yard where he pulled in and parked. Gillespie jumped down. He could still feel his teeth chattering from the vibration of the engine and the thumps of the suspension. Following his two guides, he found himself back on the main street. The galley, a much-loved looking in, stood across the road, a highland galley with sail furled and set oars adorning its sign, with the yellow and black Campbell Jirini behind. However, it was still too early for lunch, so Nin and Charlie set off in the other direction, as they had promised to help buy him some more appropriate footwear. Having rounded the corner, they came to an impressive shop overlooking the harbour, its windows laden with bolts of tartan and tweed, gumboots and gaiters. Over the door, in fine Gothic script, it simply said, Khan's Highland Supplies of Inverary, and underneath enclosed in a ribbon. Superior Highland wear for the discerning. If Khan can't, no one can. As they climbed the steps to enter, Gillespie saw an ornate shield stuck on one side of the steps, which proclaimed, Official Warrant Holder for the Realtors, 2007, 2009 and 2013. Sometime later, after a heated debate with Ali Khan, the owner, a high-tech pair of Smiths of Elgol Brogues had been picked out as the best brand for comfort, longevity and drainage. They cost a little more than the Nike or Adidas trainers that Gillespie was used to, but they bore the slogan, No Bog Too Tough, so he felt sure they would be worth the extra. After much rummaging under counters and in cupboards, the right size was located. Gillespie was really starting to look the part. Chapter 18. The Galley. As they left Carnes, the sun came out and they paused to look up the loch towards Dunderave, soaking up all the heat they could find from its weak rays before heading to the galley for some well-earned lunch. The bar was nearly empty and they secured a table in the window overlooking the street. Breege hadn't arrived yet and Gillespie idly wondered what she would think of him in his new clothes. Waving away Gillespie's weak protests, Charlie ordered each of them a pint of Boar's Head Heavy, the local brew while they started to look at the menu. Gillespie suddenly realised that sitting at the table on the far side of the room was the blonde-haired Campbell that he'd seen fighting with Jamie the previous day. Pointing him out to Nin and Charlie, they both looked round and, having caught his eye, returned his nodded acknowledgement with a glower. At that moment, Breed entered, and after a flurry of hugs and kisses, sat down to join them. Sometime later, as they were finishing their meal, a languid voice floated towards them as Niall Campbell crossed the bar. Well, look at what we have here. Two McNuchtons that have flown their nest, the Farquharson and a mystery man. Who might you be, stranger? Another hooded crow blown in to feast on the carcass of poor old Duncan Tarpey before his blood is even cold. 
How very touching. Charlie put his hand on Nin's shoulder to calm him, and with a voice dripping in sarcasm said, Ah, Niall Campbell. What a pleasant surprise, and how unexpected to find you here so early in the day. At a bit of a loose end, are we? Not got any widows or orphans to make. Well, we would hate to disturb you. We're just enjoying the last of our lunch and we'll be on our way soon enough. Niall almost seemed to enjoy Charlie's venom, leaning in with a smirk to say, And do tell me, how is your red-headed friend? You know, the one with the beard like a bog brush. I do hope you'll be able to sit down in time for the feast after they planted your chief in his much-deserved grave. I don't believe I cut him too deeply, although it can be hard to tell sometimes, particularly when your opponent has his back to you. It was Breed's turn to interject, turning her gaze from Charlie to Niall. I would very much appreciate it if you lot could take your boar bags out of my face while I'm eating my meal. This is neither the time nor the place for your petty arguments. If you want to show off, you can do it outside. Niall pouted murmuring something under his breath before nodding at Breach and walking towards the door and out into the street beyond. "'What was that all about?' said Gillespie, grateful the situation had not deteriorated further. "'Ugh, he's OK. Just a bit of a wanker,' Breach said. The words had barely flown her lips when Nin and Charlie simultaneously parroted, "'A bit of a wanker,' and fell about laughing. Through his tears, Nin explained to Gillespie, that is Niall Campbell from Overlock Orway. He's a wanker, as Breach says, but a dangerous and vicious one you'd be well advised to give a wide berth. He's always had the hots for Breach, don't we all? Ever since primary school when she used to sell him kisses behind the bike shed. Ducking from Breach's well-aimed blows that rained down on him from across the table, Nin and Charlie clapsed in a heap of helpless giggles. Bastards, the pair of you, Breach said exasperated. The one piece of information where Nin is correct is that Yon is a dangerous man. He may not look like much. Streak of warm piss, really, said Charlie. But, she continued, silencing Charlie with an icy stare, he's one of McCallan Moore's leading Dunyawassel and commands the Kilmartin Company. Their track record in Yemen and Libya probably doesn't need any introduction. Yeah, I saw him duel with Jamie yesterday. He was pretty handy, I must say. Jamie was outclassed. Aye, well, there are not many that could win out over Nile blade to blade, ruminated Nin, and Jamie was taking a big risk thinking that he was the one to wipe the smirk from that bastard's face. But I comfort myself with the thought that he's still a wanker and nothing will change that. Chapter 19. The Departure. Ewan held the cold hand in both of his, the feeble pulse was still fluttering, but its signal was fading. Duncan Tarpey's race was almost run. Gently placing the hand back on the counterpane, Ewan called out to one of the clansmen that stood by the door. Fetch the beaten man, quick! Archie Beaton arrived moments later from the next door room, where he'd been trying to catch up on some sleep after many disturbed nights. He took Duncan Tarpey's left hand and gently clipped a peg on the index finger to measure the oxygenation of his blood, pulse and blood pressure. Ewan did not have to look at the screen to know what was happening. It was unfolding before his eyes. Duncan's organs were shutting down, giving up the battle of many months, releasing him from his ordeal. He looked at Duncan's face, 
remarking that at death's approach, the cares of the world always seemed to fall from his victim. Duncan's brown cheeks were now smooth and unlined, as if the energy required to power their emotions had gone for good. Looking across to Archie, who had done so much to care for Duncan in the past months, the tears were flowing down his cheeks, his eyes red and swollen. I can do no more, said Archie. He can do no more. It is time for him to go. Ewan nodded, head bowed to the inevitable. Archie pulled the medication trolley over to the bed and rummaged through the files and bottles in the middle drawer. Finding what he was looking for, he held it up to the light and gave it a shake to check that it still contained the medicine he required. Fentanyl. Ewan didn't imagine it was going to take much. Duncan was like a man teetering on a ledge. All it was going to take was the slightest nudge for gravity and nature to take their course. Spiking a syringe through the rubber cap, Archie drew off all the contents of the bottle. He then held the syringe to the light, out of habit flicking the needle and pushing the plunger a fraction to expel any air, as if that mattered now anyway. Without further ado, he found a vein in Duncan's elbow. After committing a prayer to his lips, he tenderly inserted the needle, pushing through the skin's layers of resistance and into the vein. His thumb slowly but steadily depressed the plunger, expelling the liquid into Duncan's vein and the life from his body. Within seconds, the heart monitor alarm sounded the continuous beep that is the last thing so many hear. It was done. Ewan stood up and thanked the doctor. Time was now of the essence. Duncan had been ill for so long their enemies had had plenty of warning to put their plans in place. Ewan called for Kirsty, Alexander McNuchton, Albany and Gillespie to be brought to the Red Banner Hall forthwith. While he waited, he thought back on Duncan's life. It was indeed hard to imagine that the husk next door was the same man who duetted with Ziggy in his glam rock pomp. His charm, good looks and strong right arm had been the legendary combination that had helped the clan survive and transform. But now he was gone. Chapter 20. Gifts. The news of Duncan's death had ruined what was promising to be a fine afternoon. Gillespie had been dragged back to the castle at high speed and whisked up to the Red Banner Hall without his feet barely touching the ground. When he entered the hall, he saw Kirsty was already there, as well as a powerful-looking black man in his mid-fifties, who introduced himself as Alexander McNuchton of Albany. Alexander still had an impressive physique, which amplified his dignified bearing. His strong rounded shoulders pulled and puckered his shirt, and many thick veins wrapped his forearms like cords. He wore his hair twisted and wound into thick, impenetrable dreadlocks that he had attempted to corral with a robust band. Streaks of grey could be seen climbing upwards from his beard. Soon he would be as white as the snow on Ben Buya. Nin and Charlie had told him a bit about Alexander already. He commanded the clan's independent company, which was currently on a tour of duty in the Caribbean. They had both spoken of him admiringly, and Gillespie could see why. Ewan gestured for the doors to be closed before he began, tented his fingers and peered at them in turn. As Clan Chanaki and Duncan's executor, it falls on me to oversee his burial and the selection of the new chief. I've called you here as the clan's most senior representatives, personally selected by Duncan in accordance with canon law, so that the clan may choose a new leader. I'm sure that whichever of you succeeds to the honour, you have the potential to be a great success. But before we do that, we must first bury Duncan in the Duloch Cemetery. Many of the plans have been made, but we'll need to be careful. At moments such as these, we are weak, 
and there are those who'd wish to take advantage. Alexander, I want you to organise the security for the next few days until the new chief is appointed. Call out all the Dunya Wassel. Kirsty, I want you to review our cyber security. Make sure we have full continuity protection. You know what is needed. Lastly, Gillespie, in a few days there will be a choosing and one of the three of you will become the 36th chief of the clan. Kirsty and Alexander are well known to all of us here and therefore have a natural advantage, some might say. With respect, I don't think any of us expect you to be successful and you should soon be free to leave. Please use this time to meet with your fellow clansmen and women and enjoy the hospitality of Dundarav, as under canon law, after the choosing, the two losers will be immediately banished for a year under pain of death. That may seem harsh, but it's intended to remove any competition to a new chief and ensure a smooth transition. So make the most of the next few days and soak up your heritage. We're delighted you're here and only sorry it's in such sad circumstances. Ewan indicated that the meeting was at an end and they all stood up to leave. As they approached the door, he pulled on Gillespie's sleeve so that while he ushered Kirsty and Alexander from the room, Gillespie remained. Gillespie wished he was leaving too. It was like having to stay behind with the headmaster. He was bound to be asked something he didn't know or be made to feel stupid. Although Ewan had always tried to be friendly, he was an intimidating figure. He was also angry at Duncan for his enigmatic comment at the close of their meeting. What had he meant when he had told him not to believe everything his father had said? What kind of man says that without offering a scrap of explanation? And now he was dead, he could never ask him. Having closed the door, Ewan crossed the room to a fine-looking box sat on a sideboard between the windows. Over it hung a painting of a long-dead chief, sword and targe in hand, posing for the artist with a fierce eye and a fine moustache, but now as entombed in yellow and crackled varnish as any fly in amber. Ignoring the painting, Ewan ran his forefinger along the top of the box, which was inlaid with fine bone arabesques and ornate foliage. Opening the top drawer, he peered into the back and rummaged for a few moments before pulling out two leather bundles and a metal badge. Moving back to the table, he carefully laid them down and motioned to Gillespie to sit across from him. Looking carefully at Gillespie, inspecting his face in detail from his pointed chin to his hairline, he said, As you know, Duncan has no surviving children. Therefore, at his death, all that he owns remains with the clan. Out of the clan it came, and back to the clan it must return. However, he asked me to give you these in recognition of the unlooked-for journey you were forced to make and the dangers you have faced. He wanted you to have them so that in years to come, when you tell your children and grandchildren the story of your journey here, you might remember him kindly and forgive him the injustice he did you. He first picked up the badge, which Gillespie could now see was actually a kilt pin, was fashioned in the shape of the McNuchton crest, a tapered black tower, its jagged crenellations flaring out above a small window with an enigmatic open doorway carved below. The hole surrounded by a buckled garter which had the legend, I hope in God, engraved upon it. It looked like it had been cast in solid silver. That was a gift from King Charles Edward Stuart to your ancestor after he saved his life at the Battle of Culloden. It was made by Paul de Lamery. You doubtless know the story of how Charlie went to the stricken Cumberland and offered to help him, but Cumberland would have shot him between the eyes had your ancestor not cut off his treacherous hand before it could pull the trigger. And so, out of the jaws of defeat, was victory snatched. As you might imagine, this is an important heirloom for the clan and one of Duncan's most treasured possessions. It is a gift not lightly given. 
The badge was silver but heavily tarnished, had not been cleaned in years, the black oxidisation robbing it of all luster. Nonetheless, the fine chasing and detailing of the tower were plain to see. Ewan handed it to Gillespie, adding, I see that Ninian has kitted you out with some more fitting attire, and now you have a kilt pin to complete the look, and one that is a damn sight finer than that cheap one you're wearing. I hope it will remind you of us when you have to leave. Next, he turned to the two leather bundles on the table. Picking one up, he drew a wicked-looking blade from its leather sheath. The handle was deeply carved bog oak, as hard as iron, and was wreathed in a seething mass of intricate knotwork and decorated with small gold pins. The blade was clearly Japanese. Its carbon steel had been laid and overlaid, pounded and smelted until a wood-like grain had been folded along its length. Held to the light, this looked like a mountain range, with trees, clouds, peaks and valleys soaring and plunging along its length, as if the Araka Alps had been captured in steel. Ewan pushed over the other sheath, saying, They're a pair. They were Duncan's own skin do and skin aslich. A leading Yakuza commissioned them especially for him, from a famous Japanese swordsmith. They were a token of thanks after Duncan had rescued his kidnapped daughter. I'm told that the pattern on the blade is unique. They were very special to Duncan, and they are wicked sharp too, so be careful. Gillespie looked down in time to see a trickle of blood run down his thumb and drip on the table. Aye, well, you'd best be a bit more careful with them in the future. As I say, they are wicked sharp. Ewan then leant over and showed him how to strap the skin aslech inside his upper left arm so that the hilt nestled in his armpit and the blade ran down his side. The fineness of the blade and the shallow handle meant that it was almost imperceptible once in place, but could be quickly and easily drawn. With that blade safely stowed, Ewan stuck the ski and do into the top of his thick stocking of his right leg, flat to his shin and easy to draw. The presentation was over. Ewan stood up and shook Gillespie warmly by the hand. Whatever happens at the choosing, don't forget us when you leave. The Republic needs all the friends it can get in the modern world, and the clan likewise. Chapter 21. Fiona. It was late afternoon when Gillespie left the castle, passing through the courtyard of the fountain and into the outer ward. He looked to see if there were any familiar faces among the groups that were huddled together whispering earnestly. It seemed that news of Duncan's death had already flown the confines of the tower. Seeing no one he knew, he went to look for Kirsty at the gaming complex, but there was no one there and the door was firmly shut. Feeling a little lost, he wandered down to the lock shore and contemplated the horizon. With Duncan dead, surely he would soon be able to leave and get back to his real life. After the drama of his kidnapping journey, he had to admit that he was almost beginning to enjoy himself. Nin and Charlie made him feel curiously alive. And Bridge, so beautiful. The lock on the tower had been just like those tales of his father. What a place. But he felt ready to go. This was not his home. At that moment, he felt a small hand reach out to his, and looking down, he saw a young girl with tight, dark ringlets in her hair and large, slightly sad eyes looking up at him. She can't have been older than nine or ten. Hey, sweetheart, what's your name? My name is Mara, she said, a little earnestly. You are the Irish McNachton, yes. You are Gillespie. A little frown furrowed her brow. My mama wants you to come to our house. Come, follow me. And without waiting for an answer, she trotted off up the path to the track. Following her, Gillespie saw her turn right to follow the loch north. Intrigued, he picked up his pace, stretching out his stride so he could catch up with her without having to break into a run.
After 30 minutes they came to the very head of the loch, where the river Fyne flowed into its waters. There was a settlement of small white-hulled houses, gathered together as if sheltering from the cold wind and rain that was funnelled by the surrounding hills. At the entrance to the village, a small sign proudly announced that it was Clacken. Mara wove through the houses until she came to a small low building with a tusky garden overrun with rushes and populated with a few indistinguishable bits of rusting farm equipment. The harling would once have been white, but was now cracked and chipped, stained with rust streaks from old iron nails and screws. The guttering was torn from one eave and waved back and forth in the wind, banging against the slates with every gust. Mara knocked on the front door, which had a window of frosted security glass set in it, and through which he could see a dark shape approaching. The woman that opened the door was a definition of careworn. Her haggard face was drawn and blotchy, as if she had recently been crying. Half of her long hair still carried the faded blonde memory of her last visit to the hairdresser. The other half was grey, lifeless. Oh, it's you, she said. I suppose you should come in. She stood back from the door to make space for him to pass into the house. Mara ran on and beckoned him to follow, leading him into a small, dimly lit lounge. It was clean and neat, but simple, just a sofa, the ubiquitous flat-screen TV, and a small cupboard holding animal ornaments and a few treasured glasses. The walls were filled with photographs of a happy couple and their young daughter. Here is a baby in arms, here on a bicycle, here in her school uniform, all of them together, smiling and laughing by a big Christmas tree in front of Dundarav. As he peered at the photos, his stomach fell away, dropping through his boots. It was Malcolm in these pictures. This must be Fiona, his wife. No, his widow. Swallowing hard, he turned around to look at her. Fiona? Am I right that you're Fiona, Malcolm's wife? Aye, well I was, until he was sent on some fool's errand to please a dying man. And now what am I? Can you tell me that? Who's going to look after Mara and me, now that he's been taken away from us? Is Duncan Tarpy, at which he spat on the carpet? Is he going to feed us, clothe us and keep us warm in the winter? Is he going to hold me in his arms and fuck me all through the night like my Malcolm? No. His kind only know how to order us poor clan around, sending us hither and yon doing their bidding. If we fight and die, who cares? There are plenty more sheep on the hill to take our place. And you, I heard about you and your stupid antics. But I don't really blame you. If it hadn't been for Duncan, Malcolm wouldn't even have been there. I'm so, so sorry. He didn't know what else to say. His earlier good mood evaporated utterly to be replaced with the wasteland of her sorrow. How could he have been so callous, so thoughtless? And poor Mara, that sweet child, now fatherless. This was the outcome of high-minded decisions taken by others, a widow and a fatherless child. She turned her face away from Gillespie. He could see that she was crying, her sobs caught in a clenched fist. He put his arm around her and steered her to the sofa. She wept. He sat stony-faced. He looked at Mara over her mother's head. After what felt like hours, but what was probably only minutes, she pulled her face from his shoulder putting her hand to her mouth in embarrassment. Oh, look, I've got you all wet. I'm so sorry. How stupid of me. Don't worry, it's quite all right. 
Gillespie was relieved that the well of tears had at least run dry. Having regained her composure, she asked, Would you like a cup of tea? Sure, that would be nice. What else could he say? Fiona went to the kitchen and when she returned, she had a tray with three mugs, two of tea and one with hot chocolate for Mara, who still watched, unblinking from the window. The tea was strong but sweet. Gillespie couldn't help himself from gulping it down, even though it was too hot. Fiona breathed out. I'm sorry to bring you here, but I had to see what my man died for with my own eyes. I had to know that he died for something worthwhile and not just to satisfy some whim. Silence fell between them until she lifted her gaze to look him in the eyes. Are you married? Have you ever been in love? Have you ever felt your heart jump like it was going to burst through your chest when your lover looks at you across the room? Have you counted the hours, the minutes, the seconds waiting for his call, his text, his voice, his touch? Have you? Have you? Aye, well, I have. And now what am I left with? Just my precious Mara. Which she held out her arms and enveloped Mara in a tight embrace. Composed again, she released Mara and stood up walking over to a cupboard in the corner and opening the door. Reaching in, she pulled out a long, heavy bundle which she dropped roughly on the floor. Here, take it. I want you to have it. I want you to keep it and to remember that your actions will have consequences. I want you to feel its weight on your back every day and for that to remind you of the responsibility you carry. It is a heavy load, no doubt, and don't you ever forget it. Ever. She flung the word at him with a shout, knuckling her eye sockets as if to stop the tears from flowing. She kicked the bundle over to him and sat on a chair, looking out on the lock. He unwrapped the package. The two-handed sword, a clay de lev, fell out of the blanket in which it had been wrapped. He recognised it immediately as Malcolm's. Scooping it up, he hefted the leather-bound hilt in both hands. It was beautiful, simple but deadly, the clean lines of the forward-facing quillens terminated in heavy trefoils designed to catch and turn an opponent's weapon. The blade was at least two inches wide at the hilt and a little under five foot from point to pummel. It was surprisingly flat and thin, wobbling slightly as he stood it on its point, but sharp, so, so sharp. The hole was lighter than he had imagined possible for such a large weapon and very well balanced. The pommel, a hammered doughnut of steel, secured the tang of the blade and was a perfect counterweight to its length. The leather of the hilt was well used but not worn, the bands rising in a carefully laid spiral along its length. He noted the running wolf carved into the blade. Even he could tell this was a high-quality weapon. I can't possibly accept it. I don't even know how to fence, let alone with one of these. You should keep it for Mara or her children. He held it out to her, laying it flat on both his hands. Fixing him with a piercing stare, Fiona said, You can't not accept it. It's my gift to you, and by heaven it will be a curse that will hound you to the grave if you leave it with me. And I want you to know that I'll be voting for you at the choosing. What this clan needs is change. We've had enough of all this blood and sorrow. I feel that you've been sent to bring us this change. I'm torn that my Malcolm had to die to be sacrificed to make it possible, but so be it. We cannot change the past, we can only make the future, so make sure you do. He wanted to explain that there was no chance he was going to win, 
that her vote would be a wasted vote and that the faith she placed in him was utterly unfounded. He had no plan, no vision for the future of the clan. He did not even want to be there. He had been kidnapped against his will and dragged over the sea to this lawless and strange place. He felt bereft, as if he was responsible not only for the death of Malcolm and the snuffing out of the love that burned between them, but he was now going to fail her all over again at the choosing. Her hopes and aspirations had been laid on the donkey in a thoroughbred race. Even the gift of this sword was ludicrous. He did not know how to hold it, to swing it, to hack and batter, to bludgeon and dismember, and he had no intention of doing so. It was a wasted gesture, grand but pointless. But she had laid it upon him, and he could not throw her words and her gift back in her face. No, that would be truly heartless and shaming. Instead, he gathered the sword in its sheath and hugged Fiona in his arms, kissing her on both cheeks, his lips stinging from the salty tears that flowed down her face. Turning to leave, he walked purposefully down the corridor and out of the house, concentrating hard on putting each foot in front of the other and resisting the urge to crumple and pound the ground in anger, fear and frustration. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. <laughs>